Well, good morning. So glad to be able to open up God's Word with you all this morning. Uh, man, what a wonderfully friendly uh, congregation you have here. We, we were joking earlier. I, I do think that that is the longest greet the congregation time. <laughs> and I didn't meet a single, I, I was probably the most awkward person uh, 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 doing it. So you, thank you for not being awkward and, uh, and, and, do, and, and doing it. Uh, we are, uh, it's, it's my understanding that you all have, have been walking through the book of Matthew, and so it's my privilege to be able to pick up where you left off. And so you want to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 19. Would love to read from God's Word, Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. And this is what the Word of the Lord says. Just then, someone came up and asked him, Teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is, uh, what is good? He said to him, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he asked him. Jesus answered, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. I have kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, Then who can be saved? Things are possible. Then Peter responded to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray together as we look into God's word. Father, thank you. We want to believe it more strongly than we do right now. We want to follow it more closely than we do right now. We want to treasure it more deeply than we do right now. And so by your grace, we pray that you would, through the power of your spirit, speak through what you have already spoken. May it be so. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I became a Christian when I was eight years old, uh, and it was at the First Baptist Church of Canyon, Texas, a small town south of Amarillo. And I became a Christian under the preaching of Brother Jim Hancock. Now, Brother Jim Hancock, who pastored that church for many years, faithfully preached the gospel every Sunday morning. You could almost set your watch by it, because no matter where he was in God's word on a given Sunday, When he got about 20 minutes into his sermon, 
Brother Jim was one of these preachers that at about 20 minutes, his volume would start to rise and his tie would start to get loosened and his shirt tail would come undone and the handkerchief would come out and he would start mopping his brow and by the end of the time, you thought he was going to have an aneurysm. And so faithfully, during that period, every week he would talk about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that if you're a sinner, you can be forgiven of your sins, you can have eternal life. And most Sundays, he would end with this statement and then question. He would say, I want everybody within the sound of my voice to bow your head and close your eyes, and I want you to think about, if you were to die tonight... Are you sure that Jesus has forgiven you of your sins and that you would go to heaven? And hearing that week after week after week, I, I was penetrated with the gospel. I also came away with one of my own questions as an eight-year-old, which was, why does everybody always die at night? Surely somebody dies in the daytime but not in Brother Jim's scenario. You were always dying at night. <laughs> Nevertheless, one Sunday morning, I raised my hand, and then I walked down to the front of the auditorium, and Brother Jim knelt there with me. I'm, I'm going to start crying right now. <laughs> he knelt there with me, and I prayed, and I became a Christian. And I was baptized four weeks later. Now, maybe your story of coming to Christ is really similar to that. Maybe you were a child, too, and maybe you attended vacation Bible school or a youth camp, and you came to Christ at a relatively young age. Or maybe your story is really different than that. Maybe you came to Christ about a year ago. Maybe you were a non-Christian who was married to a Christian, and that person, over the course of years, of living your own life and feeling empty in the way that you were doing things, and you had a faithful friend or roommate that encouraged you to read a book or a Bible story, and that was the first time that you encountered the gospel. Or maybe your story, like St. Augustine, is one day that you just picked up God's word and started reading and the Holy Spirit, all the stories. There are innumerable ways, innumerable paths that each of us walk in order to come into a living relationship with Jesus Christ. But despite the innumerable ways we might come to Christ, there is really only one way that we can follow Christ. And that is completely. This is what we find in Matthew chapter 19. We find the call of Jesus to follow him in an unencumbered and complete fashion. Now, this story, at least in my Bible, is headed the rich young ruler. And the reason why we call it the rich young ruler is because this is one of those unique stories that is not just found in one gospel and not found in two gospels, but is actually found in three different gospels. And so when you combine all of those accounts together, we get a more full picture of exactly what is happening here. For example, here in this passage in verse 20, we find out that this is a young man. And we know that in Jesus' day, for somebody to be considered young, it means that they were likely under the age of 40 and probably unmarried. 
In verse 22, we find that this is a rich young man because he has many possessions. And then if we turn over to the parallel accounts in the book of Luke and the book of Mark, we find that this person is not only young and that this person is not only rich, but that this person is a ruler. And to call someone a ruler in that time would likely mean that he was in charge of either the local synagogue or the local town council. So here comes this rich young ruler And if you can, imagine in your mind how different this person likely was than the rest of the people that were following Jesus at that time. Because by this time in Jesus' ministry, he had attracted quite a following. But think about the kinds of people that were following Jesus. Well, there were the hungry who were following Jesus because they had heard that Jesus could make food and wine come out of virtually nothing. And there were the sick and the infirm that were following Jesus because they had heard that if you followed Jesus along, that there were occasions when he would perform miraculous signs and healings. And there were the social outcasts that were following Jesus because one of the rumors that circulated about him was that Jesus welcomed people into the inner circle that were always cast to the outer rims of society. You put all that together and the crowd that's following Jesus were sick, needy people. People who wanted something from Jesus. And into this fray of the sick and the downtrodden and the outcast runs someone who is markedly different by his appearance. Someone who is rich, important, and well-known community figure comes running into the crowd. Now that's another detail that's important for us. Because for someone in this day and time to run was a very undignified action. In fact, you might remember another story that Jesus told at another point in his ministry. When there was another man who was so anxious for his son to come home that when he finally saw him in At the horizon, he abandoned all pretense and all dignity and hiked up his robes and ran to meet him. When someone runs, particularly in this day and time, it's not for the purpose of exercise. It's because the thing that they have seen is so arresting to their attention that it causes them to abandon all of their self-consciousness and pretense and motivates them to fixedly get to that thing as quickly as possible, regardless of what anybody else around them thinks. And that's what this rich, young ruler does. So again, into the fray of... Sick and downtrodden and outcast runs this important and well-known community figure. And having already humiliated himself in front of the crowd of the destitute, he asks Jesus a question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, the ironic thing about this question is that he really ought to know the answer by this point. I mean, every good... And the answer was relatively simple. If you want... To inherit eternal life, what you need to do is to keep the Torah, the law of God. That's what you need to do. And yet that answer is wholly unsatisfactory 
for this man. Now, at this point, we ought to recognize that the picture, when you combine all those accounts together, is not the picture of a self-righteous, spoiled brat that we sometimes come away with when we think about the rich young ruler. In other words, when he comes to Jesus and presents this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers the question saying, well, you need to keep the commands of God. The response is not, hey, I've been doing that. And honestly, it's not that hard. Isn't there something more difficult you have for me to do? Because I am up for the challenge. It's not that. The picture that is painted here, who has tried everything and yet finds himself empty and is therefore at the verge of either great despair or of incredible spiritual breakthrough. This is a picture of desperation. Has the answer for what it means to actually live. And so in response to that, Jesus gives him one more thing to do. And it's a big one. Sell it all, Jesus says. Sell it all. And then give the proceeds away. Become poor, and then you can come and follow me. And in that command, we find again the fact that there really is only one way to follow Jesus, and that is completely, wholeheartedly, holistically. Regardless of how you come to Jesus, there's only one way to keep following him. Now, when Jesus issues this command, this one more thing to the rich young ruler, we see in this passage three different reactions to that call of Jesus to follow him completely. And likewise, when we're encountered with the call of Jesus to follow him completely, we might find in our own hearts one of these three reactions. Reaction number one, when faced with the call to follow Jesus completely, reaction number one is sadness. And that's what we find from the rich young ruler. He grieves when he hears this command of Jesus. Now, the reason why he is sad is because he has a lot of things. And so he is interpreting the call to follow Jesus through the lens of everything that he is about to lose when it comes to to following Christ. But if we could pop the hood a little bit and look a little bit deeper, sure, it's about the fact that he has accumulated all these possessions and Jesus is telling them to get him to get rid of all of those things, but also if you think about what those possessions represent, you see that maybe the sadness comes from an even deeper level. I mean, those possessions for this rich young man surely represent a source of security and safety and comfort, and maybe even beyond that, they represent the core of his identity. I mean, for crying out loud, it's 2,000 years later, and we still don't know this man's name. We refer to him on the basis of these possessions. It's the very definition of who he is. Now, it's at this point that we should acknowledge, too, when you pop the hood and look a little bit deeper, 
that this command to sell everything and follow Jesus is not necessarily a comprehensive and specific command for every believer at all times. Have traditionally taken these words so literally that they wouldn't even have physical contact with money. A better way to understand this, though, is looking at the deeper things that are involved with this man's accumulation of these possessions. And what Jesus is calling him to is to give over that particular component of himself to the care and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And for this particular man, it was his stuff. But it might not necessarily be your stuff. Earlier in the book of Matthew, there's another passage, Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus issues a similar call, but there's a slightly different reaction. You might remember this. Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and he looks out and he sees two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Now, It's interesting that Matthew says in that particular passage that these men dropped their nets. And perhaps the reason he wrote that is because Matthew was trying to be accurate in his storytelling. And so there were these people and they had something in their hands and Jesus said to follow him and they dropped the things that were in their hands. And so Matthew is just recording for us that that's what they did. Or maybe there's something deeper there too. Because perhaps these nets for those two particular men were not just about the nets. Those nets were the means by which they earned a living. They were the means by which they provided for their family. They were the means by which they had safety and security and comfort. And they were, in a sense, even the means by which they were defined in the community. In a day and time when upward mobility through society was not really a thing, you were a fisherman because your dad was a fisherman, because his dad was a fisherman, because his dad was a fisherman. That's how you were identified, and that's the contribution that you brought to the world at large. You were a fisherman. So when you take all of that into account, it is a very significant thing that they were holding tightly to these nets and the call of Jesus comes to follow him and they drop them and they start following Jesus instead and in so doing they abandon that which is familiar that which is comfortable that which provides security that which was the source of their very identity still today when Jesus issues the same call to us regardless of how you came to Christ, and he says, follow me. What he means is drop your nets. Whatever they happen to be, whether they be nets fashioned of great uh, prestige and power, whether they be nets fashioned of material comforts and wealth, whatever they may be, nets fashioned of intellectualism and Philosophy, whatever they be, Jesus says, drop your nets and follow me. That the rich young ruler felt, because you know, you know deep in your heart that to follow Jesus in the way that he demands to be followed, that it means abandoning the things in which you find your own security, your own identity, your own self-worth, your own comfort. And many times when we hear that call of Jesus, because we are so sad, we try to have it both ways. And what we end up with is a segmented kind of life 
in which we are good churchgoers on a Sunday, and yet the call to follow Jesus doesn't infiltrate the nooks and crannies of our everyday walking around being. So you might feel sadness when confronted with this holistic call to follow Jesus. But there's another reaction that we see in this passage. It's not sadness, it's astonishment. That's what the disciples feel when they hear it. Eavesdropping on this conversation, the Bible tells us that the young man goes away sad and the disciples are astonished when they hear the call to fully follow Jesus. Now, the reason why the disciples are so amazed is because the disciples were convinced that they knew what it looked like to be considered blessed by God. Again, in their understanding, to be blessed by God meant that you were wealthy and that you were comfortable and that you were healthy and that all of your children were in compliance and that you were a person of importance in the community. That's what it meant to be blessed by God. And here Jesus was telling this person who seemed to have the vast majority of those things that would make him appear to be blessed by God, Jesus telling that person to sell all those things off and follow Jesus. And so they are shocked. And we too are often shocked when things come into our lives that seem to tell us that we are not blessed by God. For as much as we would like to think that we are, you know, theologically sophisticated and Bible-believing and Jesus-trusting, it is remarkable for all of us how quickly we turn to question and doubt when difficulty enters our life. That despite the fact that Jesus told us that in this life you will have trouble, and despite the fact that Jesus told us that the whole paradigm of blessing is upside down from what the world considers to be blessed in the kingdom of God, despite the fact that Jesus told us to expect these things to come into our lives. When our theology collides with our everyday circumstances, we find ourselves wondering, what did I do wrong? Why is this happening to me or to my family? Haven't we done a good job for you, God? Now, even more in this passage... The thing wasn't happening to the rich young ruler. Jesus was telling the rich young ruler to take the voluntary action of loss. To not even wait for something bad to happen to you. For you to take the initiative and to get rid of that which might typically be... They were surprised. Now there's another detail from one of the parallel passages that would help us in this regard if we look... At the passage in the book of Mark, this is what the Bible says there. It says, before Jesus issues the command, it says that looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Notice the order, because the order is everything. Step one is Jesus looked at him and loved him. Step two is Jesus gave him a command, not the other way around. It's not that Jesus said, hey, if you will do this, then I will love you. It's that Jesus looked at him and he loved him and he was filled with all the love of the Son of God. And as an expression of that love, Jesus told him, sell it. When Jesus gives us one more thing to do, it's not because he wants one more thing done. It's because he loves us. I remember when I was in high school, I had a brief foray into the physics world that I wasn't very good at. I don't remember a lot about calculating trajectories and angles and speed dynamics and all that kind of stuff, but I do remember one of the group projects that we had to do in that physics class. Maybe you had to do one similarly, or maybe you're doing one right now. In, in our senior level physics class, we were given the assignment to get in groups of two or three people and to take these popsicle sticks. You were supposed to glue these popsicle sticks together with wood glue, and you could use as many of them as you wanted to, and they hung their bridge into the classroom, and the desks were all pushed to the side except for the middle of the room where there were two desks with a little space in between them, and you would put the bridge you constructed in between those two desks, and then systematically, the teacher would hang weights from the bridge, and it was a contest to see who could build the sturdiest bridge with that stuff to support the amount. The thing about that project was... Everybody knew that there was going to come a point, no matter how sturdy your bridge was, that it was going to crumble. It wasn't a question of whether it was going to. It was just a question of when it was going to. So there was never a moment when my physics teacher, Mr. Traversky, stood up on top of the bridge in order to cross the chasm between the two desks. The reason why is because that thing was not constructed to bear that kind of weight. One of the issues that we have in our lives in a near consistent basis is that we continually look to things in our lives and apply greater weight to them than they were actually designed to bear. Your family is a wonderful thing, but it was not designed to bear the weight of all of your self-identity. Your career, wonderful. It was not designed to bear the weight of your self-worth. All of these things in life, no matter how good they are, God did not create them in order to bear the full weight of all of our love, of all of our joy, of all of our happiness, of all of our satisfaction. And when we start hanging all of that weight on any one of those things, no matter how sturdy it might seem, it's just a matter of time until it crumbles and we are crushed. The only thing in the universe designed to bear the full weight of your love, of your joy, of your satisfaction, of your self-definition and identity, the only thing that is sturdy enough and strong enough is the Son of God. 
Everything else will crumble underneath that weight. And this is why it is such a loving command for Jesus to tell this rich young ruler to sell everything that he has. It's because he has hung his weight on the wrong thing. Jesus is calling him. He's calling him to put his weight on the right thing, the thing that can actually bear the brunt of it. So if you are feeling astonished this morning like the disciples at the complete call to follow Jesus, the demands of Jesus, then consider that those commands of Jesus are an invitation. And know that the invitation is to something more and better because he loves you. So, we might be sad, we might be astonished. The third reaction that we see in this passage to the complete call of Jesus is that of entitlement. We might feel entitled when we hear Jesus call this morning to follow him completely. That's what we get about Peter. So the disciples are listening in and they ask their question. And Peter's listening in. And he makes his statement as well. And Peter's statement comes to the effect of, well, what about us? Because we've done that already. I mean, look behind us. There is a trail littered with stuff we have left behind to follow you. What are we going to get out of this deal? Peter, too, was still looking at following Jesus as a transactional kind of relationship. We do X so that you will do Y. And perhaps you feel that a little bit this morning too. That you didn't make and all the choices that you did. And then you look at the state of your life and you ask the Lord, at least in your most private moments, when are you going to pony up? Because I've done a lot of stuff for you. And we should be very, very careful with that sense of entitlement. The main reason that we ought to be careful with that sense of entitlement is because we really don't want what we deserve. We really don't want what we deserve. Because the wages that we deserve is death. We think we want what we deserve, but we don't. And when we come with a sense of entitlement to God, we are revealing that we have forgotten what we have truly earned through the decisions that we've made through this life. Now, Jesus might well have reminded Peter of that fact in this moment, justifiably so. He might well have pointed Peter to the fact of, Peter, I think you should be very careful with what you're asking for right now. But in his grace, Jesus does not. Instead, he points Peter and he points us to an amazing truth this morning. And that truth is this, that following Jesus will cost you everything but following Jesus will bring you more. Following Jesus will cost you everything, but following Jesus will bring you 
more. Make no mistake here, friends. Jesus was calling the rich young ruler to loss, to lose his possessions, to lose the markers of his identity, to lose his sense of comfort and security. He was calling him to loss. But that call to loss was only a stopgap to something greater. In other words, the loss that he was calling the rich young ruler to was not an end in itself. It's only the necessary pathway that must be walked in order to understand true gain. And the same thing is true with us. That Jesus is not inviting you to live a life of loss. Ultimately, he is inviting you to a life of gain. But the only way to experience that is by walking the pathway of complete and abject surrender to him, holding nothing back. Peter felt entitled. The disciples were amazed. The rich young ruler, at least to our knowledge, goes away sad. You can just imagine him walking of all of his big stuff, surrounded by all of the creature comforts that once made him feel so safe, so secure, so stable, so comfortable, but had, over the course of time, lost their luster in the face of what he was lacking. But I wonder if for a moment you could imagine along with me, what if he changed his mind? Now, we don't have any indication in the Bible that that actually happened, but let's just imagine there together for a minute. Let's imagine that later that night, there he is in his house surrounded by his stuff. And he remembers the call of Jesus, and he remembers how sad he was. And he looks around at the things that he has chosen instead of Jesus. And suddenly, he is filled with an even greater sadness than he experienced on that road. That he's sad at his choice. He tries to go to sleep, but he can't do it. And he wrestles all night long until sometime in the early morning, he makes the decision. And he wakes up the next day, and at first sunlight, he starts doing the thing that Jesus called him to do. Piece of furniture by piece of furniture, pot by pan, shirt by pair of pants. He starts unloading it out into the front of his house, and then he starts yelling at the top of his lungs, garage sale, garage sale. Everything must go. Rock bottom prices. And they see all this stuff out there. And one by one, people walk up and they say, how much do you want for this? And he says, well, how much do you want to give? And they exchange. And then as the day goes on, he calls out periodically, I'm dropping prices again. Dropping prices again until the stacks get lower and lower. And with each stack disappearing, his heart gets lighter and lighter. And he finds himself unencumbered by all of these things until finally he's got a wad of cash. And he runs through the community and throws it this way and that. And then he finds himself on the road again. And he is running again, except he's running faster this time because he's not weighed down with anything. Can you imagine the next meeting? 
with Jesus. It would have been so much different than the day before. And I suspect that there would have been a lightness to it. A winsomeness that was absent. Now the young man was ready to start following Jesus. But he was ready to start following him with open hands. And the expectation that Jesus will fill them with something better. Friends, following Jesus, following Jesus will cost you everything but it will bring you more. In just a moment, we're going to sing together a song of response and commitment and align ourselves as best we're able to the will of the Lord. And I wonder if you would consider what it may be that is weighing you down from following Jesus and accept the loving invitation that Jesus is issuing again this morning to sell it all because he has something better for you. I wonder if the band would go ahead and you guys start coming up here. We're going to consider this just for a moment. Kevin, other pastors will be here. If you would like someone to pray for you, perhaps you're here this morning and you are realizing that you have never come to Jesus at all. Boy, what a wonderful thing that would be today for you to embrace the call of Christ for the first time. We'd love to talk with you about that. But perhaps there is something, some matter in your life that you would just appreciate, want somebody to pray for you about. We would love to do that as well. Let's pray together and then we will stand and will sing and respond to the Lord. Father, thank you. This is a hard command. Sell everything and follow me, regardless of what that everything is. And we thank you. We are so grateful that this is a command that is made in love. And we pray that we would view it that way, treat it that way, embrace it that way, follow it that way. Thank you that the pathway of loss is only a pathway that the end is greater gain. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to follow you. Grace, this call from you, from your word this morning. We pray that it would be done in Jesus' name. Amen.